Amen. If you remain standing now as we read God's Word together, uh, these words from Paul's letter uh, to Timothy, his first letter, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Let us read these words together. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, if you weren't here last Friday, I want to tell you we had a truck retreat here for the community. It was an awesome time together. Uh, if you haven't heard, um, I dressed up as Woody, um, which was the first time I've ever preached as Woody, and hopefully the last. Um, it was a really good time together, and uh, I got to talk about Buzz uh, during worship uh, uh, last Friday and um, talk about, you know, faking it and how, you know, Buzz kind of fakes it, but in reality, you know, kind of all of us have some sense of us that fakes. It was a really good time together. And, uh, you know, today we're going to keep with our Defying Gravity uh, sermon series. And if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out uh, of your bulletin. It might help guide you through this conversation that we have. Um, we've been talking about Defying Gravity for a couple of weeks now, and um, specifically uh, about um, our, our finances, what God gives us, uh, our resources, our time, our energy, our efforts. And we've been talking about how we have all of these things and how we use them for the kingdom of God. Uh, how do we use these things God has given us, given us to multiply the kingdom on earth? Um, last week we learned uh, that we want to multiply uh, the good we do for the greatest impact. Uh, we want to multiply. And so we want to think about all of those good things that we do. And how can those good things not just be standalone instances? right? How can those good things that we do uh, throughout our lives, those those, those beneficial things that we do for the world, how can those not just be standalone, right? The, these one-time random occurrences that will never happen again, how can we take those good things we do and really multiply them uh, for the greatest impact in the kingdom of God? Uh, last week, we also talked about a tithe. We talked about how tithing is giving God the first tenth of one's income. Um, God calls us a tithe, and in the Old Testament especially, they gave a tithe um, to the temple, and uh, this was used uh, to benefit the kingdom of God. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit more about that, and, and I kind of just want to have a disclaimer, um, you know, before we begin this conversation, uh, just a couple of things. One of them is that if you're a guest, we want to say welcome. We want to say how happy we are that you are here and, and honored that you would even just try this place out. And, and as we talk about tithe, um, we don't want you to think that, you know, just right now, we want you to start giving 10% of your income. Um, we realize, you know, that, that churches kind of have to earn that trust and respect. And so, you know, we don't want you to feel any guilt or shame around this conversation. Um, really think of this more as a conversation um, about budgeting and what does that look like in, in our individual lives. And also want to talk about, you know, just kind of the elephant in the room is that most people just kind of accuse churches of just talking about money right? Most people, you know, use this as an excuse and say, oh, you know, that church just wants our money. You know, all, all they do is just talk about that, and, you know, I'm not going to go there anymore because, you know, all they talked about is how I'm supposed to give my money to the church, and, you know, kind of shamed me for even making anything and keeping it for myself. And, and, and I want you to know that's not the case, at least here. Uh, that's, that's not the case at all. 
um, that, that in the Bible we talk about uh, tithe. We talk about giving 10%. And the reason that is, is it's not a conversation about what God wants from you, but, but about what God wants for you. That when we give a tithe, when we give 10% of our income, the first 10% of our income, we start to realize that, that all of the things that we have are really God's in the first place. And we also start to learn that there is no amount of money that we could ever accrue. There is no amount of stuff that we could ever get that would really grant us the security we're looking for, right? There, there is no dollar amount, there is no house big enough, there is no car nice enough that we could have that would ever grant us total security in our life. And that's what the tithe proves. It is an acknowledgement that, that God is really the one in control and we will hand over this tenth. We will give over this amount with the insurance that, that God will really care for the rest as well. That other 90% of our time, of our effort, of our money, that, that God is really caring for us this entire time. That's what this conversation is about. And so I don't want you to get caught up in the fact that, you know, the, the church wants your money. It's, it's not about that. It's about what we want for you. It's about this life that we really want for every person. Uh, because the truth is there's a lot of anxiety out there, especially around money. There's a lot of anxiety out there. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic a while back uh, that said this, that 47% of Americans would have trouble paying for a $400 emergency. Almost half of the United States would have trouble paying for a $400 emergency. You know, you can kind of tell who those people are, right? You know, maybe these people are really careful, right? You know, like, you know, as they go out and do things, you're like, nobody get hurt, right? Nobody get hurt, you know, because I don't, I don't know how we're going to make it if, if you do, you know? Or, you know, it's, it's a really strict conversation about work and, you know, don't make anybody mad. Or it's a strict conversation about the car or about, you know, the appliances or all of those things. And, and this causes a lot of anxiety in our life. This can cause an extreme amount of anxiety in our life when we live this way. And what we want you to know is that there's a better way to live. There is a better way to live than this, this kind of month-to-month -month wondering if we're going to make it and not being able to pay for an emergency that comes up. There is a better way to live. And so what we realize is that most Americans, some Americans don't save anything, and even less Americans actually give anything to nonprofits. What we learned is that 80% of Americans gave between nothing and 2% of their annual income to nonprofits. This isn't even just to churches, this is to nonprofits. They gave next to nothing or 2% of their income annually to a nonprofit organization. And what we realize is that most people say, you know what, I, like, I just don't have enough. You know, I, I, I just don't have enough. Most people evaluate that, you know, when it comes time for, for taxes or even at the end of the month, and they say, you know what, like, if there's anything left over, you know, I can give that you know, to United Way or to the church or to something else. And, you know, if I have some left over and, and then, you know, the con common excuse is I just don't have enough. And, and, you know, that's actually right. But maybe we're, we're living, you know, above our means. That what we realize is that generosity and savings don't just happen. We have to plan for them. We have to make an, a decision to actually do that. And that when we don't give, whenever we don't save, it's not out of a lack of want or resources. It's out of a lack of planning. That whenever we don't do those things, you know, we, we see these needs come up, 
right? Maybe a friend comes to us and says, you know, that, that they're trying to get by and they need something extra, and there's this deep want within us to actually do that. Right? There's this deep want for us to actually help a, a family member or a friend. You know, we really say, well, I just don't have enough. And we're thinking, I wish we would have planned back. Right? I, I wish I could go back, you know, three, six months, you know, a year ago and, and wish that we could actually go back and do this thing. That, that we could make a plan to actually come and do this now. That I think whenever we don't do those things, it's not because we don't want to or even because of a lack of resources. Because I think many of us are, are living above our means. I think it's really just out of a lack of planning. And, you know, we say, commonly say, well, like, when I make this much, you know, whenever my income is this amount, you know, whenever, whenever we make this month, sure, this dollar amount, whenever the kids get out of this, you know, whenever, uh, you know, after they get out of college or, you know, after they get into the car or whatever this next big expense is, then I can do it, right? And what we realize is that, you know, boundary keeps getting pushed back further and further and further and further. And the truth is, we have enough now to do this. What we know is this, that if we have a $3,210 net worth, we are the wealthiest half of the world. So that if you could take everything you had and you sold it and it equaled just $3,000, you'd be the wealthiest 50% of the world. And, and what I believe is that most of our net worth is actually much more than that. So that we are pushing 80 to 90%. That some of us might be here and be the top 1% of the world's income. That, that, that if we look at this problem globally, we'd actually realize that we are very wealthy people. One of the ways to evaluate our wealth in today's world is to think about choice. That wealthy people get to make more choices. Wealthy people get to make more choices. And think about the decisions that you made this morning. That, that I would imagine all of you decided to come here Maybe some of you had a choice of which car you got in, or which clothes you wore, or, or what you ate for breakfast this morning. That we had many different choices on this day and this morning, and throughout our entire lives, we have many more choices than the rest of the world. We have many more choices than the rest of the world. And just, just think about that, that how, how much opportunity we have right now. Friends, we are rich, we are wealthy, we are incredibly blessed to be exactly where we are. And what will we do with that opportunity? Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. Paul is a follower of Christ. He was an apostle who started many different churches, and he um, encouraged many different people to come along with him and help him start these churches, and then he sent them off to continue the work of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of these people that he brought on was Timothy, um, a young man that he brought on with him to help start new churches, and then he sent him back to Ephesus to be with the Ephesian Christians. And after he sent him back, Paul would turn around and write letters back to Timothy and encourage him and let him know uh, what the next right thing to do would be. And one of the letters he wrote was the passage that we read. And he says these words, he says, Tell the people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they are to hope in who? God. It said there to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do what? Good. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. 
When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. Paul says, tell those people who are rich to do good. Tell those people who are rich to do good. We think, what does that look like? What, what does that mean in today's world? Well, I think one of the things it means is to make a plan. Create a mission statement. Maybe for yourself or for your family. What does that look like? A mission statement for, for you or for your family. And, and, and ask this question, why does your family exist? Why do you exist? What is your goal? That we have to do this first. Before we start talking about money or time or whatever it is, we have to do this first because this will dictate what we do with the rest of those things. That, that if we make this statement, this belief about why we exist, it will start to dictate how we spend the rest of our life. Right? I would encourage you, maybe an invitation for you is, is to go home and evaluate this and consider this. Maybe sit down with your spouse or maybe just a friend or, or someone and say, you know what, like, if I had a mission, if I had a goal, what would that be? Um, Melissa and I took this very seriously, my wife and I. Um, back in September, uh, we were very excited about you know, what God was going to do uh, through Acts 2. We're uh, beginning a, a new extension campus called One Church. And we knew that this was going to be a very important time in our life. And so we sat down and we actually made this mission statement. Uh, and we uh, wrote this down as, as a belief of why our family exists. We said to be a family that practices self-control, presence, and generosity so that everyone might know the love of God through Christ and participate in bringing the kingdom here on earth. And here's the thing about this mission statement. We really like it. Melissa and I thought it was good. You know, it took some additions and and we went through and revised it. Um, But the truth is, you know, this mission statement is going to change. You know, because we have a a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Anna, and an eight-month-old son, Elijah, and they're going to get older. They're going to get older and, and, you know, it's not really going to work to just like hand them this and say, okay, here's your mission statement. You know, we as a family got to do this now, right? I mean, that's just not going to fly with a 12-year-old. But in fact, we believe that this is going to change and morph. And so we're going to include our children in on this and say, you know what? This was the statement that, that, you know, your mom and I thought was a really good idea back then. And, And what do you think now? Well, what do you think our mission should be now? And so I would encourage you to, to sit down and make a mission statement. What does that look like for your life, for your family? And, and let that dictate how you spend the rest of your life. And, and go back to that. And maybe, if, you know, if you want to get really fancy, you could like frame it and put it up somewhere or maybe just hang it on the fridge or put it in the bathroom mirror or somewhere that you can see it and say, this is why we exist. And how do all these other things help us do that? How, how does our, our budget, how does our time, how does uh, soccer practice and going to the movies, how do all of these things help us accomplish that? And the truth is, those things might help you accomplish this. One of our first goals is to be a family, right? One of our first goals is to be a family, and we can't do the rest of that stuff without being a family. And so having family days Going to the zoo, going to the movies, those things are important for us as a family because without being a family, we can't do the rest of that stuff. So I would encourage you, friends, what does that look like in your life? What is your mission? What is your goal here on this earth? 
that we can't start talking about our time, our money, our resources without talking about this thing first. And so once we have that plan, once we have that mission, that clear goal on this earth, then we can start talking about our finances. And I would really encourage you just to, just to budget. Budget not only your money, but your calendar as well. Take a look at what we are doing now and, and how does our mission statement affect this, right? Look at, at our money. And, and, you know, do the important things first. Here's, here's the mortgage, here is the, or the rent, and here are the utilities, and here's the food, and all these other things, and, and look at where all of this money is going. And then ask your question, how does this mission statement, is, how is that found here in this budget? And then look at our calendar, and all the places we are going, and all the things that we are doing, and ask yourself, how is this mission affected here in my calendar? That we would seriously consider that. Paul has very strong words about this as a family and budgeting and, and making sure that we have enough. He says this earlier in, the, in his letter to Timothy. He says, teach these things so that the families will be without fault. But if someone doesn't provide for their own family, and especially for a member of their household, they have denied the faith. He says they are worse than those who have no faith. And these are really strong words. Paul encourages us to care for each other, care for our family. Now, to be clear, he's not talking about people who have, you know, lost their jobs and who are looking for new ones. Uh, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about people who can provide, who have an ability to, and, and just don't because, it's, you know, it's, it's not fun, right? You know, we haven't budgeted because, you know, that conversation is stressful and all those other things. And, you know what, we, we'd really just rather, you know, go out to eat tonight. Paul says, no, it's so important that you care for your family. Friends, our family is our first ministry. Our family is our first ministry that if we can't do that right, then the rest of the things start to fray at the ends as well. What does that look like for your life, friends? I would encourage you as you consider a budget to, to consider this. That what if, at the beginning of the month or the end of the month, whenever you get your check, what if the first thing we did was give 10%? Again, God calls this a tithe, and He asks for it to be the first thing that we do. The, the first tenth, and, and, and give that, because we know that God will use the 90%. And we know that no amount of money that we could ever accrue would ever give us security, and so that we would give that 10% back to God. So the, the first thing that we would do is give 10%, and the second thing we would do is save 10%. What if we could live this way, friends? What if we could live this way that when we first got a check, that the first thing we did was give and then save, and then we lived off the 80%. Just imagine that the way that would change our lives and change the world if we could live like this. So we're going to um, just have some audience participation because I think that this would really change our relationships and especially those of you who are married would change our marriage as well, right? This would change our marriage. And so I, I want to have some audience participation. We're going to talk, um, uh, I'm going to ask you about the three major fights in every marriage. Okay, and I'll, and I'll give you a hint. We're going to talk about money a little bit later, so it's not um, this first one. But what do you think the number one fight in, in every marriage, the first one is? And it's the one you don't want to yell out in church. Yes, it's sex, right? That you didn't even want to yell it out in church. Uh, that it's the, one of the major fights in every marriage is, is about sex. 
And so that's a very important conversation to have. Um, and, and even as we prepare to get married, as we're going through premarital counseling, this is a very important subject that we talk about this and that we, that we know that this is one of the, the major um, sticking points in every relationship. Um, an, another, uh, what's, what's another major fight in every relationship? What do you think? It's about people who are related to you. In-laws, right? In-laws is, is one of the major fights in every relationship. Um, don't laugh too hard because your spouse might get mad at you. But um, in-laws is, is one of the major fights in every relationship. And then the third one is the one we're talking about today, and it's what? Money. Okay, so these are the three major fights in every relationship. These are the three major fights in every relationship. And, and what if we could eliminate money? Right? What if we could eliminate that fight in our marriage? Right? That our relationships would be much better. That if we said, you know, we're going to plan now that this, we're going we're gonna to give 10, we're going to save 10, we're going to live on it 80, we're going to do all of these things so that we can ensure that this won't be a fight. We're going to have important conversations about it still. Right? About major purchases that we have, about, you know, places we're going to live or things we're going to do, vacations we're going to take. We're going to have important conversations about it. But those conversations are going to be so much easier if we do this on the front end. This is the way we can live, friends. But we have to choose to do it now. We have to choose to do it now because many of us are sitting here thinking, you know, I, I just can't do that. There's not enough. You know, I don't, I don't make enough. And, and, and that's right. But that's right because we're living above our means. We're overreaching. We're overstepping. And maybe this is an invitation for you to consider downsizing. To consider downsizing, or maybe it's as simple as just not eating out every night. Or, or, or not buying all those things that you don't need. And maybe this is an invitation to live simply. To decide to do that very thing now. Because here's the truth. If we don't choose how to live our life, everyone else will choose it for us. If we don't choose how we are going to do this thing, everyone else will decide it for us. That if we don't decide right now how to spend our money, the world will decide it for us. If we don't choose how to spend our time, our resources, everyone else will choose it for us, friends. So let us make that decision now. And so your action steps for this week are to simply make a plan and live on a budget. I would encourage you to make a mission statement. What does that look like in your life or your family? That you would make that statement and then figure out how does that mission statement affect the way I spend my money, affect the way how I spend my time. What does that look like? I would encourage you to seriously consider that. And we have to decide how to do this thing now because everyone else will decide it for us if we let them. Back in the 1920s, there was a man by the name of Raymond Reitwig, and he started a competition, and he was going to give a prize of $25,000. Back then, it's the equivalent of $300,000 now. Back then, he was going to give $25,000 to the first aviator who could fly across the Atlantic from New York to Paris. Uh, there was a big aviation boom in this time, and so there were many different pilots, many people who believed they could do this thing. 
And it, it was a big spectacle in the time, and, and it was always in the paper and always in the news, and, and people were really excited about it. And there were many different people who, who tried uh, to fly from New York to Paris. Um, one of the people who tried this was a man by the name of René Fonck. Um, René uh, was a French pilot, and um, every pilot who tried this, um, because of the jet stream, flew from New York to Paris, and so he came to New York, and, and he had a plane specially built for this flight. And this was a very ornate plane. He, he was very concerned about making this a big spectacle. He knew the news and the media were going to be all around. Uh, people were going to be taking pictures and interviewing him, and so he wanted this plane uh, to represent him. And so he had this very ornate plane built, and then he actually invited other pilots. He had two other pilots in the plane with him because it was going to be an over 33-hour flight. And so he, he wanted to be well-rested by the time he arrived in Paris um, for the big festival that would be had in his honor. And so he had other pilots brought on with him, and then he had the plane furnished. He had the, the plane furnished with, with mahogany furniture and even a pull-out couch. He had a kitchen in the back of the plane, including the kitchen sink. He was going to take everything to Paris with him, including the kitchen sink. And when it came time to fly, his plane was built to hold 20,000 pounds, and his plane came weighing in at 28,000 pounds. When it came time to actually take off, he had to put an extra tire on the back of the plane to hold the weight of everything that was in it. And when it came time to fly the plane, he and the three pilots boarded the plane, and they went down the runway at full throttle, and the plane never made it off the ground because of all of his stuff. He simply had too much. Renee never made it to Paris. The first man to fly from New York to Paris was a man by the name of Charles Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy, as you might know him. And he flew the Spirit of St. Louis from New York to Paris because early on he decided that he was going to take part in the construction of this plane. In the construction of the Spirit of St. Louis, he was going to take part in every detail of the creation of this plane. And he had two rules when it came to creating the Spirit of St. Louis. Two rules. Keep it simple and make it light. Keep it simple and make it light. He had a part in the construction of this plane, that he didn't even let them put a front windshield on the plane, because the metal that they used to create the entire plane was lighter than the glass they would put on the front windshield. And so he actually, during mid-flight, would actually have to roll down the window and stick his head out of the plane to see where he was. That when it came time for him to fly, he had notes that he wrote on a small piece of paper. And he even, just before the plane took off, trimmed the piece of paper so that he could keep it simple and make it light. He made all of these decisions up to the flight so that when he would take the 33 and a half hour flight, he would arrive in Paris and be the first person to fly from New York to Paris on May 22nd, 1927. He would become the most famous man in the world because he decided how he was going to fly. Friends, my hope and my prayer for you and for all of us today is that we would decide now how we are going to live. 
Because friends, as followers of Christ, we are called to make a difference in this world, and the only way we can do that is if we decide now.